You're not supposed to clap until it's over because you don't yet know if it's going to be any good. Let's pray. Father in heaven and also here, there is something dynamic about us getting together to sing, to think, to pray, to concentrate on you, putting other things out of our minds, at least for a while. I ask you as I speak to prompt me with things that I haven't written down if I need to say something extra or to take out some things that I've planned if that is your wish. I know that in some cases when someone speaks like this, you speak to people's hearts with something new or extra that the speaker doesn't say. That's your spirit at work. That may be the case. I simply ask you to be in control to be so sharp and clear in our minds that we know what it is that you want us to hear today. I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks for your welcome. It's good to be back with you folks again. The last time I spoke here was two years ago, January, and that was during the last pastoral transition you had. When I heard that you were again in pastoral transition, I offered to come and speak if I could be useful because I do have a deep affection for Bethel. Some of you know that I grew up here in the city. Uh, San Francisco will always be home no matter where I am, no matter where I live. I graduated from Lowell High School back when it cost 15 cents to ride the bus. All phones had dials and were stuck to the wall. All books were made of real paper, and there were no helicopter parents. Yes, indeed. I'm way past midlife crisis. I am at retirement age. I am in my golden sunset years, so they tell me, and I qualify for every geezer discount I can find. <laughs> but I still mentor young men. I have been in youth ministry for nearly 50 years. Some of those, as Tim mentioned, are in Reading at the um, Simpson University, but I also mentor young men other parts of the world by Skype and FaceTime. This week, uh, if you want to pray for me, you, this week I'll be meeting with uh, Reading Christian High School to see the possibility of teaching Bible classes there, which I would love to do. I love kids, especially missionary kids because I was a missionary, uh, missionary teacher at the Alliance Academy International in Quito, Ecuador for 22 years. Taught Bible, mentored high school kids. And in fact, several years ago, I was given the privilege of presenting that ministry here, which I very much enjoyed doing. Spending time with high school and college men keeps me young at heart. I just don't look like it. My aunt said to me many years ago, don't get old, you won't like it. And she was right. <laughs> 30 years ago, I attended Bethel regularly. I was director of admissions at Simpson College here in the city, and when Simpson moved north to Reading to build a brand new campus and become Simpson University, I had to leave and go with them. My, one of my greatest regrets was having to leave this church. I've told many friends down through the years that attending here was a little taste of heaven. 
So I hurt with you, even at a distance, when you face the stresses of pastoral transition. I'm not here today just as some preacher guy to fill in a spot on the calendar. I really care for this church. I hope what I say can be helpful for you, but you will be the judge of that when I'm done. By the way, those of you who know her, my mother, Maxine Collard, sends her greetings to you. She also has a great affection for Bethel because so many Bethel women were part of her women's Bible studies, citywide Bible studies that she led years ago here. She's almost 96. She's still living in her own house in Reading. My brother, Kevin, takes care of her 24-7. And true to form, mom prays day and night for anything and anyone that comes to her attention. She is definitely praying for us, for you, and for me this morning. All right, let's get to the subject at hand. Mighty. That wake you up? When I'm invited to preach, I immediately begin asking the Lord, what do these people need to hear? Not what do I want to say or what's my favorite subject of the month, but what do these people need to hear from God? Tim Raymer sent me the invitation on Thursday two weeks ago. I immediately began to ask the Lord that question. I asked my family to pray with me. The young men I'm mentoring at Simpson University are praying with me. I posted my need for prayer on my Facebook page, and Waldo and Susie Church, who many of you know, popped up and said, we'll be praying for you. And by the way, they send their love to you. I sent an email to my emailing list, and... Uh, Torin and Ron Sunday immediately told me they would begin to pray. They used to attend this church. I told the men in my Sunday, uh, Saturday morning Bible study, and they are praying for us as I speak here. Well, you know, when people pray, God responds, but in his timing, not ours. And this time it took a week. Nine days ago, early on Friday morning, I woke up suddenly with a song going through my brain that I had not heard of for years. It used to be really familiar in churches and youth groups and Christian schools and camps, and the tune was composed during the Jesus Movement of 1972. I hadn't heard of this song or thought of this song for probably 20 years or more. But when I woke up that morning, suddenly, this tune and the words were going through my head insistently. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, is mighty. Anybody recognize that song? There are a few. I never hear it anymore. It's all I heard. There is more to the song, but that's all I heard. That line, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, is mighty. It surprised me. It impressed me, and I believe... I hope that that was the Lord waking me up to tell me what he wanted you to hear. It's Zephaniah 317. Whoever composed that tune in 1972 used the King James Version of the Bible, which, of course, was very common back then because a lot of the modern language Bibles were not yet published or popular. New International Version, for example, the NIV, came out six years later in 1978. Very recently, the International Standard Version, the ISV, was published. It puts the entire verse this way. 
Actually, that says ESV. What I asked for was the ISV, but that's okay. It's close. The Lord your God among you is powerful. Let's see if that's what it said. No, that's not the version I wanted. Take that one down. <laughs> okay, that's the wrong version. The international standard version says this, and I'll say it slowly so you catch it. The Lord your God among you is powerful. King James says in your midst, okay? He will save and he will take joyful delight in you. And this is why I wanted the ISV up there, the emphasis here. In his love, he will renew you with his love. He will celebrate with singing because of you. Now, there is a positive message in the midst of transitions of any kind. Does that really sink into your heart, your heart of hearts in unsettled times? Or is it just a nice concept that gets trampled by real life? Is God only mighty in concept for you? Or is he truly mighty in all of the transitions, all of the changes, all of the uncertainties that you face in life? That's your choice. Your choice, what do you accept? Let's pick this apart. The words in the midst of you, which is in the King James, the words among you, which is in the ISV, the International Standard Version, or with you, if you have the NIV in front of you, those words are a profound statement. No other faith system in the world promises a loving, personal relationship with God. Not one, not one. The Lord your God among you is mighty. In his love, he will renew you with his love. Quick word study here. Most of you know the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language. I am not a Hebrew scholar, but I looked it up. The Hebrew term for in the midst or among is kereb, and it, and, and it means these things. The nearest part, the center, the heart, the inward parts, within self. And I like the words at the core. The Lord your God at the core of you is mighty. Now, the Hebrew term for mighty is gibbor. It means powerful. By implication, a warrior, a champion, a chief, one who is strong, valiant, and brave. In the Old Testament, when Zephaniah wrote this verse, the temple was a building to which people had to go in order to connect with God. But in the New Testament, praise the Lord, things changed radically through the work of Jesus Christ. And we together as Christians, we are the temple, not this building. We are the temple of God. And you individually and I individually as followers of Jesus Christ are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. He lives in me personally, he lives in you personally, and he lives in us as a family. And he is mighty in his love. He will renew us with his love. Now in times of transition, that should empower us and also help us relax. If you're visiting here today and are exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I'm very glad because this mighty God wants to be your mighty God. 
not as a harsh judge or some dictatorial tyrant or some distant king, but as a loving and intimate father who will erase all your sins, adopt you into his family, move the Holy Spirit of Jesus into your heart and life and walk with you wherever you go and whatever you do. And then the promise is that you will enjoy eternity in heaven with us, the rest of us who are also Christian people. That's why you'll often hear us say that becoming a Christian, following Jesus is not a matter of, of um, oh, joining a church or joining a religion. It's a matter of a relationship with the mighty and strong and loving God. The Lord our God among us and within us as his people is mighty. And the Lord your God in the midst of you personally, at your core, in the center of your being is mighty. But are you really convinced of that? It is truth. Do you live your life that way? Uh, as I mentioned, or as Tim mentioned, I live in Reading now. And no, it is not always 115 degrees in Reading. It's just for a little while in the summer. But we're very glad that we have air conditioning, very effective air conditioning. AC units require a lot of power. The larger the building, the more power is needed. Costco, Walmart, Safeway, the mall, all these require huge amounts of power to run their AC. Same source, different needs. But up in Reading, the power generated by our massive Shasta Dam provides the electricity for both huge superstores and then my little tiny apartment. Same source, different needs. Now, in my apartment, I have this little tiny fan. How effective would this be in Costco or Walmart? actually bought it at Walmart, five bucks. But you know, in my little tiny apartment, it actually moves the air around a little bit and makes it feel better. But you know, I got to plug it in. Can't wave it around in the air, plug it in my ear, have someone come and massage it, expect it to work. The same massive Shasta Dam that we have up there producing power gives the electricity for the massive air conditioners at Walmart and my little tiny fan. Any idea where I'm going with this? I have a question for you. Do you ask for the mightiness of God only in large matters? Healings, miracles, Marriage problems, addictions, firings, layoffs, family crises, recovery from crimes, huge financial needs, pastoral transitions, and other big things. Those are the Costco-sized power needs. When my brother Grant was six, he was hit in the eye with a rock from a slingshot. Ran home crying. Mom looked into his eyes. She was absolutely horrified. You could see bleeding in the back of the eye through the blue of the iris. And they rushed Grant to the hospital. And the doctor said, well, he says that we may need surgery here. But we had no money. And we had no health insurance. So dad simply told the doctor, we can't afford it. We will just have to pray and see what God does. The doctor said, okay, but, you know, 
your choice, but you need to get Grant immobilized. Can you imagine trying to immobilize a six-year-old? And he took this big patch and he stuck it on Grant's eye to keep it closed. He said, take him home, put him to bed, and don't let him move much. Okay, so we did. We put Grant to bed. And then Dad anointed him with oil, and we prayed for Grant. And Grant was smart enough to lie still and go to sleep. The following day, we got up, took Grant to the hospital, to the doctor. Dad took the patch off so that the doctor could look, at, look into his eye when the doctor arrived. And finally, a few minutes later, the doctor came in. And he stooped down, and he looked into Grant's eye, and he said, oh, wrong eye, and he moved to the other one. Wait a minute, he moved to the first one. What? And he moved to the second. He said, he was astounded at what he saw, or maybe I should say what he didn't see. There was no evidence of any damage whatsoever. That's a Costco-sized power miracle for my brother and for our family. I've never forgotten that. I was 13 when that happened. But God as mighty also applies to little things. We pray for God's power in the big stuff. Why not pray about the small stuff? Job 6.35 says, God is mighty in both power and wisdom. Wisdom. Sometimes wisdom is needed for the big things, like, for example, in pastoral transitions, like you're going through. But sometimes wisdom, we can ask for the small things. As I mentioned to you, my mother is a praying woman. She has a close friendship with God. And I watched both my parents down through the decades as they prayed for everything, small or great. They prayed for everything. One thing that mom practiced was praying as she shopped. She would go to a store, she would pray and ask God for the best deals. Something as simple as mayonnaise, something as complicated as new clothes. There was mom, there was dad, there were four of us kids, one limited income. And so they prayed a lot. God always provided for us. You can see I've never missed a meal. But we were not wealthy by any means, but we were provided for. She and dad asked God for the best deals. Now, for a period of years, they lived in a house on Slope Boulevard, and they noted at one point that the wallpaper in the kitchen was beginning to deteriorate, and they figured we really ought to replace this. It's looking kind of tacky. And so um, they started to pray for the best deals in wallpaper. Now, they couldn't afford retail. They didn't have enough money for some guy to come in and do this for them, so they prayed. The kitchen had an unusual three-color uh, tile and counter scheme in their decor in, in there. And so they were praying for some kind of deal where they could find wallpaper that would match. And they continued to pray. And they continued to look. And they continued to pray. Some weeks later, they were in the Central Valley. Mom can't remember which town. She thinks it might have been Merced or Madera. And um, they were on their way back from Mariposa and they just decided to stop and relax for a few minutes, go out for a walk. And they stopped in a shopping district, did a little window shopping, they're walking along. And all of a sudden at one store, my mother said, um, Dad, let's go in here. So the two of them walked into the store, they browsed around, they looked at stuff and on the back table in this store, they noticed a basket. And in the basket was wallpaper remnants. These were leftovers from other jobs, stuff that was being discounted hugely. And if I remember, 
wallpaper was 50 cents a roll. And guess what the three colors were? And enough to cover the kitchen. Instant prayers of thanksgiving. And one more example of a mighty God providing wisdom to my parents to be patient and wait and look for the best deal. A tiny fan use of the power of God to accomplish what he wanted for the family. That is the wisdom of God and the love of God for people who pray. Now, we've got a lot of stories like that in our family. Our family's not perfect, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but we have a lot of stories of God answering prayer because we were patient, because we looked toward his might and love and didn't rush things. I've learned down through the years to depend on God for the large things and the small. The Lord our God in the midst of us is mighty in his love. He will renew us with his love. Now, raise your hand if you just love uncertain transitions. Nobody? <laughs> Most human beings like dislike transitions. In fact, some people hate any kind of change at all. Many people are terribly rattled by sudden changes, especially if they don't know what the results are going to be, and that's okay. It's human nature. Most of us like things predictable with the occasional planned difference. Note the word planned. Regular work schedule, a planned vacation. Uh, your house where you can save ahead for a planned roof replacement. Years of working at a job with a planned retirement. Or a church where a pastor ministers for quite a number of years with a planned transition. But life isn't like that all the time, is it? Right now, you folks are in the middle again of a pastoral transition you did not expect, in which the outcomes, the results, leave you in the dark. Well, at least so far. And at least you. But God is not in the dark. One of the songs we just sang in the dark where eyes cannot see, I think was the line. I'd never heard of it before, but that's a good line. In the dark where eyes cannot see, but God has the eyes to see in the dark. What can easily happen in uncertain times is a two-step contradictory mistake. Step one, immediately turn to God in surprise and concern and uncertainty and fear and perplexity and pray diligently about the situation. That's a good step. That's a great step. Step two, really worry. That is a contradictory mistake. Step one, to pray diligently is exactly what God wants us to do. Ephesians 6.18 says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. This is all, all, all. Pray, pray, pray. Romans 1, 9, Paul said to the Romans, he says, God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night, I bring you and your needs in prayer to God whom I serve with all my heart. Sounds like my mother. Day and night. It's a good step. Step one is a godly step. But then there's step two. Really worry. Well, that's wrong. Big mistake. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be worried about anything. Or some versions, be anxious for 
nothing. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, worry isn't the same thing as legitimate concern. I mean, we all have legitimate concerns about transitions. Legitimate concern is rational. It is logical. It is thoughtful. It leads to constructive prayer and conversation and contemplation and level-headed discussions about what to do next. Who does God want for Bethel in these next number of years? What does God want for Bethel in these next number of years? That's a legitimate concern. But worry is emotional, and it can lead to destructive conversations and behaviors and contemplation and even damage, plus ulcers and headaches and heart attacks. Worry is like those medication commercials you see on television. You have bad breath? Take Stinkoblast for bad breath. Your social life will bloom like these flowers flying through the air over these beautiful people running through the park under the sun. Ask your doctor if Stinkoblast is right for you. And then in that little tiny voice, side effects are elevated blood pressure, acne, baldness, nausea, dizziness, psoriasis, loss of hearing, blurred vision, difficulty breathing, ingrown toenail, schizophrenia, your spouse will leave you, your dog will die, and someone will steal your truck. <laughs> oh, wait, that's country music. give in to anxiety misses the target of total, complete, utter faith and confidence and trust in our God who is mighty. In his love, he will renew you with his love. Philippians 4, 6, be worried about nothing. Most of you know the New Testament was written in the Greek language. In Greek, nothing in that verse is an extreme word. It means not even one person, one thing, not one tiny bit, not at all. And it adds the thought of without delay, which means immediately rejecting, abandoning, disposing of any worry at all. The word everything, when it says everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In the Greek language, everything is also an extreme word. It means the whole, entire, thoroughly. Now you might say, okay, we've studied Philippians. Tell us something we don't know. Nothing new here. Sure. We've read it. We've heard it. It's easy to say, easy to read, easy to study, easy to memorize, easy to agree with it in our heads. But here's my question. How effective are you personally at rejecting worry. Anyone here live completely worry-free? Nobody? Shouldn't all of our hands be up, including mine? I don't always succeed at this, but we should. Thank God he loves us thoroughly. He knows us completely. He knows that transitions are hard, but that doesn't change the command. Do not be worried about anything. That's the expectation. But here's the better news. <laughs> he does not expect us to reject worry by ourselves. The Lord our God among us and in us is mighty. We need to draw on his power for that. Now pastoral transitions are always or often raise a lot of dust. 
here's how our mighty Father can provide power for you in the process. There may be gossip, but godly people choose to speak positively by the power of his spirit. Worry and anxiety may arise, but godly people pray in mighty hope. Uncertainty may reign supreme, but godly people pray for powerful stability. Critics might have a field day, but godly people powerfully encourage each other. Hearts may be broken, but godly people look to our mighty Jesus for comfort and then use that to comfort other people who are heartbroken. Some people might leave the church, but godly people continue friendships with them in the power of the Spirit. Some people question God negatively in transition times, but godly people ask the right questions in the power of the Spirit and then wait for God's answers. Spiritual cancer can set in, but godly people pray for powerful healing and restoration. The whole process can become strained, but godly people pray for stamina from our mighty God. Relationships might be stretched, but godly people pray for unity in the powerful and loving spirit of Christ. Church leaders begin the difficult process of contemplating the future, finding new candidates, all kinds of ideas are thrown around about what we ought to do, what kind of candidates to look for, what spiritual gifts do they have, what talents do they have, what experiences have they had, how good is their preaching, do they smile, do they laugh, do they have a good sense of humor, what, un what uh, universities or seminaries did they attend, are they warm and friendly, do they dress nicely, are they funny or serious or both, do they relate well with people, do they have new and great ideas for us as a church family, and on and on and on lots of ideas but here is my two cents worth take it or leave it here's what I believe first priority look for a candidate who prays I mean genuinely and constantly talks with God not talking about prayers here on the platform during services not talking about Prayers that are um, in, in the beginnings of committee meetings and the ends of committee meetings. I'm not talking about prayers that are over the meals or um, at various ceremonies. Those are good. Nothing wrong with those. I'm not saying that. There's nothing wrong with them. But they're not enough. Find a candidate who talks with God regularly, automatically, and consistently. Look for one who models a praying lifestyle for you. One who leads you as the Bethel Church family in conversations with God, which are honest and often and more than just routine. Look for a candidate who will call Bethel to times of prayer together regularly, to a life of prayer as a community. I was shocked by this last week. I just read this. Barna Research, which is a surveyor of the Christian world, kind of like Gallup surveys out in the public. Barna surveys the Christian world discovered in a survey a few years ago that only 3% of pastors make prayer a high priority in their ministries. One, two, three percent. I'm astounded by that. That is absolutely horrific. Hear this. The Lord our God within the Bethel Church family is mighty. In his love, he will renew you with his love. But you have to talk to him. You have to talk with him. You have to listen to him. And I know some of you do. I hope all of you will. 
few weeks ago, March 18th, a young man from Stockton named Joe Pony spoke, uh, spoke to you. I um, listened to the message on the Bethel website. I'd, I've never met him. I've never seen him. But by his voice, he seems like a very animated guy. And some of the things he said were, were funny. I mean, I laughed at part of what he said. But one of the things he said in that message was really serious Bringing someone to Jesus to be saved is not the ultimate goal of the church. It's only the start. He's so right. He said, we are made for community. Do you remember this message? When someone decides to follow our mighty Jesus and join our family, that's called salvation, being saved from sin. All sins are forgiven. The spirit of that person is given life. We call that being born from above or born again. It's spiritual new birth. But that's just the start. When that person is then lovingly fed and nurtured by Christian people like you guys who are energized by the mighty power of the Spirit of God, that is sanctification, the $50 Bible word that means being transformed by the renewing of your mind, being made better and holier and more mature and stronger and more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just academic. It is a powerful process by the God who is in us, who is mighty, and who loves us. We're made for a mighty community. Greater is the spirit that is in us than the spirit that is in the world. The Lord your God among and within you is mighty. And that's true whether you have a senior pastor for a while or not. Pastoral transition often creates this worry. We don't have a leader right now. <clears throat> Thank you for playing. Try again. That's false. You do have a leader. I'm not talking about elders and deacons and other men and women who are le in leadership in the church who are wonderful people and needed. But your supreme leader, the head of the body of Christ, is Jesus himself. And he's mighty. And he loves us. Missing a human leader for a time does not mean you don't have leadership. The Lord your God among you and in you is mighty. That fact alone should build the confidence that you need to face this transition again. With legitimate concerns, yes. With worries, no. Our mighty God lives in each of us, each of us, and in all of us as a body, and he loves you all the time. He is your primary source of power and might. He is your primary source of wisdom and understanding. He is your primary source of unity. He is your primary source for great ideas of ministry. He is your primary source of stability. He is your primary source of strength. He is your primary source of faith, hope, and love. He is your primary source of life. I'll wrap up with this. Do y'all watch YouTube videos? I bet a lot of you do. <laughs> I love the funny ones. And I don't, I don't mean just the cat videos, all right? I like those too. But what I really enjoy watching are the epic fail videos, which really reveal a lot about human limitations and stupidity. Um, in one of these videos, there's a hard hat construction guy, maybe you've seen this, who has an electric jackhammer that he's using to try to get through a concrete wall. 
So what he does, is, it's not plugged in. The cord is just hanging there, all right? So he picks the thing up over his shoulder, and he starts whacking away at the wall like this. Bang, 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 bang. And it, nothing happens. A little, few little chips here and there. That's about it. Just bang, bang, bang. Well, a few seconds later, this other hard hat guy comes running up behind him, and he grab, he gets his attention. He grabs the cord, plugs it into the extension cord, and then shows him how to pull the trigger. Great. So the guy pulls the trigger, and the thing starts vibrating. And he goes, bang, 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 against the wall again. All the while, this thing is vibrating in his hand. Finally, the second worker runs up again. He gets his attention. He says, no, 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 hold it against the wall. Then pull the trigger. It works. Concrete begins to shatter. That jackhammer guy trying to do by himself what could only be accomplished with power. He looked pretty foolish. Epic fail. A dense concrete wall and a dense construction guy. Powerless fail. Until he turned the power on. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God among you is powerful. He is mighty. He will save and he will take joyful delight in you. In his love, he will renew you with his love. He will celebrate with singing because of you. Don't make the mistake of trying to jackhammer through this pastoral transition on your own, in your own strength. Talk with God Constantly. That's not just the leadership of the church. I'm talking about everybody who calls Bethel home. Talk with God constantly. Be wisely patient. Plug into the power of our mighty Father by His Spirit to lead you through this. And let's see what our mighty God does. Father, again, trusting this situation and these people to you, I'm so thankful for your spirit's power and for your mighty love. You have things ahead for them that they can't see yet in the dark, but your spirit brings life and light. And we are incredibly grateful for that. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We're celebrating what is called communion. By the way, I am really grateful for the privilege to do this because when I was pastoring, I had the opportunity to lead in communion a number of times, but since I haven't pastored for a number of years, this is a great honor. And I appreciate the, the folks in leadership here who asked if I'd be willing to do this. To me, this is not just a ritual. There's something terribly important about remembering the death of Jesus, but always in the context of the resurrection of Jesus. I don't approach communion with a somber, sober, mournful kind of attitude because if Jesus had only died, then that's what we would feel. But we come to the table of remembrance for, of, for the death of Jesus because we know that we have the life of Jesus. So as we do this, People will call it celebrating together or considering together or remembering together. Whatever your personal approach to this is, remember that this is in the context 
of one, Jesus' command to do it, and second, the resurrection that followed. Normally, the passage that is used is from 1 Corinthians 11. It's a very familiar passage. And people who do communion or lead communion usually start out right where Paul says to the church at Corinth, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself, and so forth. But I want to back up a few verses. I, 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 got, I don't know if this is the spirit moving me yesterday or if I'm just doing this myself. I hope I'm doing the right thing. I, I don't really have the privilege because I'm not a member here. But I was prompted yesterday in my head, and I, I think it was from the Spirit of God, to go back a few verses. Because that instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 is actually in the context of a problem. It's a great statement by itself, but it's in the context of a problem. And Paul says this, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And he says, to some extent, I believe it. Now, I don't know what he heard about the Corinthian church. And quite frankly, I haven't heard anything that tells me that there are divisions in Bethel. I don't, I'm not coming from any, you know, information about that. But I was prompted yesterday to wonder, as we come to the table, figuratively speaking, and as these elements are passed around, and as you take them, do you need to settle accounts with anyone before we do this? I don't know. I'm simply asking the question. I hear that there are divisions among you. I want you to think, if you have no issue with anyone else in this room, great. You're in good relationship with everybody here. We're going to take a few moments of silence and if there is someone here that you need to talk to, just to start the process of building a connection where there has been a bit of a division. I'm not talking about massive divisions. I'm talking about individuals now. But if there's someone you need to deal with in these next few moments of silence, it won't be terribly long. Do that. Get up, move to them. And just simply say, can we talk afterwards? Because I'd really like to resolve what's between us. All right? If nobody moves, that's fine. If you have your, your ducks in a row when it comes to relationships, that's terrific. But I just felt constrained to give this opportunity. So that when we do pass these things around, and we celebrate the death of Christ in the context of the resurrection of Christ, we can truly do that in community, which is what communion relates to. In order for privacy, if you just bow, just close your eyes and talk to the Lord for a few minutes yourself. And if someone needs to make a move, 